This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by GoGo. Time is running out to save on your in-flight Wi-Fi system. Whether you're adding connectivity for the first time or upgrading your existing in-flight communications, you can still take advantage of smart savings on GoGo Advance when you order by December 31st, 2021. And don't worry, you have through December 31st of 2022 to install and activate. Visit gogo.to slash promo to learn more. This week on Hangar Talk, NOTAM no longer means what you think it means. The FAA approves a new Super Cub. Also, does your cell phone really interfere with the airline avionics? And a new job for Sully. Finally, a big-time threat to 100 low lead in California. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week is Steve Carlson. He's a guy who, who you found. He's got this really cool trip planned, and he's a brand new pilot. Yeah, and he's going on a helicopter tour of all 48 states, the lower 48 in the United States. It's going to start in April, and he is almost, at this point, he's almost a, uh, a helicopter pilot. He's got a couple of hours left to go, and he is going to spread the word about small business, help folks who have been hurt by the coronavirus pandemic, and also open their eyes and ears to GA. All right, cool. We'll talk to him in a bit. But first, let's get to the news. Effective December 2nd, there's a new NOTAM for NOTAMs. Yeah, well, you know, NOTAM would typically mean notice to airmen, but uh, it's only the 21st century now. And the FAA is finally on board with this. They're getting there. Yeah, right. Don't slap them too hard, but it's going to be known as a notice to air missions moving forward to be more inclusive. So, David, I'm sure you saw some of the the chatter online about this. I was I guess I should say I, I wasn't surprised. I was I was disappointed because ultimately, you know, it, notum is a notum is a notum and boy, the fact that people care so much about this just it, it got me. I mean, it's like who cares? It's a notice to air mission now. Who cares, really? As long as you know that there's an action that you need to be paying attention to, you know, that's the bottom line. Does it really matter what it's called? Uh, not really. But I I will take the, the viewpoint that I'm glad to see it be more inclusive. And I know that might not be a, a popular stance with a lot of folks, but I think that the FAA missed the boat 
back in, uh, what was it, was it 2019 when the Airman Certification Standards were updated, and uh, and they were called the Airman Certification Standards, and I think we... Yeah, it could have been like the Aeronautical Certification Standards or something like that, or Aircraft Certifications. Well, no, it couldn't have been that, I suppose, but Pilot Certification Standards. There you go. There you go. And so I think we, I think the FAA missed the boat back then. Yeah. Listen, let's just face it. We want aviation to be more inclusive. That yes. is my standpoint, and people might not agree with me, but that's where I stand. Oh, I'm with you. You know, it occurred to me as I was reading this that at some point in the past, right, we went from the Airman's Information Manual to the Aeronautical information manual and i don't even know i don't know when that was or obviously i know what precipitated the change but it's like we just moved on it's now the aeronautical information manual big deal right agreed but the bottom line is to you know pay attention to what what's in it and let's Mm -hmm. obviously you know train to the appropriate standards yeah uh, moving forward and speaking of moving forward let's go to our next subject which is the nx cub so the NX Cub, this is the, well, I'm going to call it sometimes panned, but always respected nose wheel X Cub. We have talked about this in the past, Cub Crafters, which is just this incredible churn of innovation in terms of the backcountry world. They are putting a nose wheel on the X Cub and it is now FAA certified. Yeah, that's big news. Uh, we first saw that NX Cub, it was a big secret a couple of air ventures ago. I think Jill Tom mm-hmm. and wrote one of the first stories about that. But, you know, that opens up the backcountry into a lot more folks. Some of us nose wheel pilots might be more comfortable, although um, I think you and I both have tailwheel endorsements. But this is kind of a neat thing. It's a real heavy-duty shock, you know, strut on the front of that aircraft. Yeah, it looks like a trailing link yeah. uh, nose wheel. So, yeah, built for the backcountry. I'm with you. I think this is a super cool idea. I mean, some people say, well, it's not a backcountry airplane without a tailwheel. But it's like, ah. Oh, you know, forget it. I don't I don't believe that. Lots of people are flying 182s into the yeah. backcountry, even some people 172s. And it yes, it opens up this this environment to many more people because as you know, flying tailwheels, you have got to be on it. And I think people rightly know that it's like if they're not constantly practicing constantly on it that they could get in trouble and so it's like this is a, i think a really practical solution absolutely and as dave hirschman writes in a in the story that you can find online at aapa.org an estimated 85 percent of u.s pilots don't have a tailwheel endorsement mm-hmm. so this opens up the backcountry for all of those pilots and like we said we want that we want aviation to be fun and more more um inclusive less less exclusive but listen we can't can't pass the subject by without tipping our hat to uh the cub crafters founder jim richmond who recently passed away and um, he was an innovator and uh, highly respected in the aviation community our own asi's richard mcspadden is going to have a tip of the hat to him in an upcoming column but we wanted to recognize Jim Richmond as a driving force, not just for that that NX Cub, but for the entire resurgence of that you know Piper Cub backcountry movement. Yes, exactly. Yes, very good point. Hey, David, five G. Obviously, everybody has been here about this because Verizon runs ads constantly, and AT and T and everybody else. And so we think, okay, the new era and cell phones. But the FAA, apparently in the background for many years, but now publicly is coming out and saying, no, 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 wait a second, there are problems with the aviation and five G. I think maybe we've talked about this in the past, but the FAA has taken the step now actually of issuing a couple airworthiness directives really targeted at this issue, which is an important one. 
Now, I'm not sure if that airworthiness directive will affect me in a Cessna 182 or 172 or RV-12, but if you are flying a transport category airplane or helicopter with a radio altimeter, also known as a radar altimeter, this would affect you. And you need to keep an eye on that. So, Ian, we were talking a little bit about this before the show, and I asked you to explain to me why it was so important that the 5G and the interference and the radar altimeter, how they all mesh together. There's some very important things to as takeaways for this, especially during commercial operations. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't understand all the radio stuff is like way beyond me, you know, the physics of it. I guess that they're on the C band, which is where some of that interference is occurring. The, you know, radar altimeters are used, I believe, used for Cat 2 and Cat 3 approaches. So, you know, you're talking about airline pilots who are being able to go down to 100 or even zero zero. these automatic, you know, autopilot landings. Obviously, we're at 200 and a half on ILS approaches, but any of those really foggy days you see at commercial airports or really low days, that those are all Cat 2, Cat 3 approaches. And so if, as this AD says, where 5G is rolled out, you can't use your radar altimeter. We're talking about potentially some pretty huge delays. I mean, those like talk about Northeast days with low fogs that you've got in the winter mm-hmm. or in the fall. I mean, it would completely shut down the airport. And a lot of the snow country, Ian, when you're thinking about flying into Steamboat Springs or Aspen, mm-hmm. you know, any of the airports high out west, if there's a lot of snow and there's low visibility, that could also affect you. And that radar altimeter does come into play, especially when you're around terrain like that, when you're around terrain and mountainous areas. And we recently had an ASI story about a mishap as well where the radar altimeter would pro- would have provided another level of safety yeah if the pilots were paying attention to that of course yeah so you know the FAA they say they they feel good that this issue is going to be resolved and it's going to be resolved amicably we'll see you know thankfully it doesn't seem to impact most of light GA but for the larger traveling public it is it is a deal and obviously for airline pilots and, and airline operations speaking of, Sully, our buddy Sully, moving on to the next piece of news. Our friend Sully is the new IKO ambassador. Chelsea Sully Sullenberger, everyone will remember him from the Miracle on the Hudson, U.S. Air Force fighter pilot and former U.S. Airways captain who basically landed on the river in New York. And so the ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, it's a United Nations Air Safety Agency, and he was confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the ambassador to ICAO. I think that's fantastic. I agree. In fact, I was actually really surprised at how strongly support came out in favor of him. I even saw it. I mean, I think there were there were editorials in sort of mainstream news, which I was, you know, when was the last time an ICAO ambassador was talked about in, you know, the whatever. When, the, when was the last time you ever heard of an ICAO ambassador? Yeah, no, nobody ever talks no, about it. No, of course. And which is, I think, why he's a great choice, right? He, he raises the profile. Yeah. I, I got to tell you my Sully story. Okay. I think it's kind of funny. We'll see. He So he was a young Eagles ambassador. So he, there you go. He has ambassadorship experience. Maybe he put that on his resume. Yeah, I bet he did. Yeah, right. You remember, this is a couple of years ago, he and Jeff Skiles were young Eagles ambassadors. Well, now, wait a minute. Let's remind people, Jeff Skiles was the first officer. The FO. Yeah, okay. good point. So they were they were ambassadors. And the deal there is that you appear in a lot of EAA media and you go to AirVenture and you inspire kids to go on these rides and then hopefully eventually become pilots. So uh-huh. there was a media availability at AirVenture. And I had just read 
William Langevice's book about the miracle on the Hudson. Oh, wow. Have yeah. you read this book? No, but I was covering, I'm going to, I was covering the World Series in Atlanta, standing next to uh, Sports Illustrated photographer Simon Broody, and he mentioned that. Oh. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's re- so I'm gonna, yeah. for sure. It's a fantastic book. Langevice is an incredible author. But the book, I mean, he, he doesn't, I would say, it's been a few years since I've read it, he doesn't come out and say this directly, but he basically says... Any idiot flying that airplane would have had a successful outcome because the Airbus is such a good airplane Oh, that the design, the engineering, the thought that goes into the automation and the safety features behind the Airbus are second to none and anybody would have been able to do that. Nah. Now I'm taking, I mean, that's, he didn't exactly say that, but that's, that's the takeaway from the book. And so I asked Sully about it. I was like, well, what are your thoughts about Langaviche's book? Surely you've read it. And he's like, I'm not here to talk about the book. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> like, no comment. He wanted to talk about kids. And so I, it was, it was funny. I don't know. I definitely, he has cultivated an image and it's done well for him. And, and I give him credit for that because I think it has raised the profile of pilots. And I think that's a good thing. Say what you will otherwise, but I, I, I think he's a great choice and he's a good ambassador for aviation. Yeah. And he seems like a good guy. I met him briefly during a, a reunion with a lot of the folks that were on that that flight and it was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, it was really interesting. The airplane was on uh, display back in, back in the back there. And I mean, it's just an uh, amazing, uh, amazing piece of work. Now, Sully, he's a little bit active on Twitter. So he tweeted, it's one of the greatest honors of my life to be confirmed as the United States ambassador to IKO. I look forward to working together with other IKO members and leaders in the global aviation community to ensure the highest levels of safety and security and to address the many challenges we face. Very diplomatic. Yeah, I we should say, I mean, it is an ambassadorship, so it is quite a prestigious post. Very cool stuff. All right, David, so we need to end not necessarily on, on such a high note uh, as Sully being the, the IKO ambassador, and this is the availability of Avgas in California and or I should say maybe the lack of availability. It has been announced that a couple of airports in California, a couple of big ones, as of January 1st, will no longer sell leaded aviation fuel. And the bigger takeaway for the rest of us, Ian, is the fact that that there's likely a trickle-down effect across the country at some point. So for all aviators listening to Hangar Talk, let's all be aware of the fact that there is this, uh, as Dave Hirschman says, an existential threat to all of GA, as we look to get the lead out of the fuel that we are using. And so you said it, you said it right in. So two airports, Reed Hillview and Santa Clara County, which we've written about and reported on quite a, quite a bit in the last couple of years, plus San Martin Airport. So after December 31st, both of these airports will only have the 94 octane formulation, which is not compatible with higher compression engines. Yes. So we have talked about this in the past, I think when we talked about recently, when we talked about the GAMI story, mm-hmm. many lower compression engines can use this lower octane fuel and do it safely and fine. Yep. And there are STCs available. It's the higher compression engines like the Bonanzas and 210s and CRI and things like that. But they those airplanes use 70% of the fuel. Yeah, a disproportionate amount of fuel, more traveling because those are going place airplanes. Yeah, and they burn more fuel per hour. And yeah, exactly. So AOPA, obviously, and many other aviation associations, this this is a major safety issue. I mean, you're talking about 
big time GA airports not being able to sell Avgas anymore. So it leads to all kinds of concerns about misfueling, about running out of fuel, especially, I mean, there's so many reasons why this was, there's not a whole lot of notice given. You're talking about, you know, when you're really desperate for fuel, what do you do now? You have fewer options. And like you said, the trickle down effect, I mean, it's potentially very scary what could happen over the next couple of years here before we have a viable alternative. And we're going to keep an eye on this. We're going to keep an eye out for the APA members. We want to start to rally the troops now to let folks know that there are options out there, as you mentioned. We also talked recently about the G100UL, the GAMI fuel that we talked about. But, you know, Ian, some of these options do come with disadvantages as well, like the that G100UL, it's 60 to 80% a gallon more money than what we're used to spending right now. And at some bigger airports, it's already five or six bucks a gallon of gas. And, there's, and, and that particular unleaded fuel has a little bit of a weight penalty too, 0.3 of a pound uh, heavier. But there are trade-offs. Tom Haynes is on top of this, and he said there are trade-offs with more efficiency. So on one end, uh, we're looking at a potential weight penalty, a little bit of a, of a financial hit. But uh, you and I were talking a little while ago, right, just before we got on air, and we're thinking and we're like four to five years out for distribution for some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, the, the thing that really has surprised me about the GAMI fuel is it, it's looking great, right? I mean, it's looking yeah. like they probably will get approved for all these engines. And, and so there's this natural thought that's like, man, if we could just hold on for six months or eight months, California, we're all going to be fine. Well, apparently that's not the case. They're talking more in the case of it takes a few years to get, I don't know the what, infrastructure. to make sure. Yeah, the infrastructure gets set, the supply chain, the safety testing, whatever, about all the storage and distribution and everything else. And so you you are talking about a few years. And I think the thing that's so frustrating is that aviation, you know, I'll call it aviation, so general aviation pilots, manufacturers, owners, we're all ready to go unleaded. We're ready to go now. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why, why hold us back? Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. And I think people are, we're just waiting for the right solution. And we've been trying. I mean, that's the thing. It's like this PAFI process has been going for many years. So it's not like the industry's dragging its feet and needs to be pushed to, to move. We're, we're pulling. No, but uh, AOPA has also been a part of that fuel initiative for a number of years. But the problem is that Someone keeps moving the finish line, yeah. you know, so to speak. And then as there are new advances and there, something else looks promising, then there are there's the yin and yang of, well, what doesn't work about it? Yeah. And it could, be, it could be, like you said, distribution, pipelines. You know, how do we clean out the pipelines? How do you put this particular fuel into a fuel truck if you're trucking it? Or, how, you know, where is it manufactured and refined? Mm -hmm. How does it get from point A to point B? Yeah. So we need to keep an eye on it, but we want our members and, and even folks who are not members that are listening to Hangar Talk, we want them to know, keep an eye on this, and AAPA is fighting for you. Yeah. It's, it's So this particular issue in California, and broadly, it is a major initiative for AOPA and, and trying to attack it from all fronts. All right, David, so let's move on to our guest. Um, again, Steve Carlson, he's a guy open for business 2022. He's got this helicopter tour planned and really excited to hear more about it.
Welcome to the show, Stephen Carlson of the Stephen Carlson Show and also a helicopter pilot student with some big news to uh, update us with. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Let's talk a little bit about your aviation career to start with, and then we'll get into the small business helicopter tour that you are planning for early next year. Sounds good. Yeah, as a kid, I always loved helicopters. And, you know, I remember looking up and seeing, I grew up in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. So I would look up and see Bay Flight Medevac flying by, and I always loved it. And I would, everything about helicopters always intrigued me. And fresh out of high school, I was just barely 18 years old. I'm just a dumb kid. And I went to the, the Navy recruiter and said, I want to fly helicopters. And he's like, well, you need to be an officer. I said, okay, what do I do? He said, well, you have to work your way up on that. You don't just start off as an officer. Well, it was kind of a bit of a fib, but whatever. And uh, he said, you have to work your way up. So we started in the back of the helicopter. So I started off as a Navy corpsman or a medic on a search and rescue helicopter. And that's what I was training to do. So you started out helping other folks in the service, but in the back of the helicopter. And it was probably intriguing you as to how did the helicopter operate you know, how does one fly one? And, and goodness knows you probably have numerous hours in the back of a helicopter already. Right. But I wanted to be on the stick. I wanted to be on the controls. So when I got out of the Navy, I went to the Army and said, hey, I learned my lesson on the Navy recruiter. So I want to make sure when I sign up that my paperwork says pilot. So I went through everything and I got all the letters of recommendation. I went through all the processing, everything. And I was ready to ship off to a warrant officer school and I got into a car accident and I hurt my back. Oh, goodness. And I was like, oh, now luckily it was nothing bad, but I was at the point where I was then too old to go into the program as well. So I was right at the age where I could still do it, but then the vehicle crash just kind of pushed me out of it. So the timing of it pushed it back enough where where you could project to the future and see that it really, the timing wasn't going to work for you. That was the problem, exactly. That I would have been too old to meet the military's requirements to be a, a officer pilot. But the fire and the desire to learn how to pilot a helicopter never went away. Exactly. So you got early experience in the, in the back of a chopper, always wanted to, to know how the thing operated. I'm going to put you on the spot, but about how many hours do you think you have in, in, the, you know, in, the, in the passenger side of a chopper? Whew. Honestly, I don't even know. To give an answer, I really couldn't even guess. Well, how many hours do you have in the front seat of a helicopter now, now that you've been taking lessons for a while and you're pretty darn close to earning your certificate? So I'm pretty close to being able to finish my, um, take my check ride and get ready with that. I'm thinking about three to four weeks I should be ready. So right now I'm just shy of 40 hours as the pilot. So that's a magical number, that 40 hours. we got to have that as a requirement. Correct. And you got things scheduled out for the next couple of weeks um, as we go into the holidays. Correct. Yeah, I'll be over the 40 hours when I'm ready to test, but I'm about 40 right now. And I'm thinking about 55-ish and I'll be ready. That's not unusual. That sounds like a pretty good plan. Right. And you and I were talking last week when we were setting up today's conversation, and, and there were a couple of hurdles that... You know, most students hit a plateau or a hurdle that they have to get over. And you said things just all of a sudden started clicking for you. Tell me a little bit about that. What led up to that point? Sure. The handful of things in the beginning, I was so busy. I run, you know, I have my YouTube channel. I own a couple businesses. I own some real estate. So I was so busy on everything. And just me being naive, thinking, oh, well, the helicopter's just for fun. I'll only go maybe once a week or two. So I was going once a week. And if weather was crappy, well, we would do a ground lesson. 
And in Florida summer, there might have been three or four weeks that that Wednesday was just bad. So I wouldn't fly for three weeks. And then I would get in and my instructor, she would just have to repeat the entire previous lesson because I'd, while mentally I'd remembered it, I didn't have the muscle memory for it. So it was, we were constantly repeating it. Right. Sure. That's common. Even, even in fixed wing. So we, it was just, we were constantly repeating some of the, the beginning lessons and I was able to change some of my schedule so that I was able to get to the airport and be in the helicopter a minimum of two days and then at least one ground per week. So I was usually there three days a week. And that made a big difference. Oh, it was huge. And then I was getting ready to start my solo and I still, I wasn't ready. And my instructor knew I wasn't ready. So we just put some more hours in there. And I would say that I, I was confident that I could safely operate the helicopter that I wasn't going to crash, but I didn't feel like I was controlling the helicopter and getting it where I wanted it. I was constantly struggling to get it there. Kind of behind the machine instead of in front of it. Exactly. So it would do something and then I knew how to respond to it, but I needed to be able to project and understand where it was going to go rather than constantly reacting to it. So I'm going to, I can relate to that a little bit. I did some tailwheel training and I felt like some of the time I was a little bit behind the airplane and that's what you never want to do in a tailwheel aircraft. Right. So really thinking far in advance and putting yourself on the front end of that and flying the, the aircraft instead of having the aircraft fly you is the key. Exactly. Yeah. And then I would say after my first, what they call unsupervised solo, and maybe that's the general term everybody calls it, but you know, we did our first couple solos where I just basically, the instructor was down by the, um, airport. She was just watching me and I'd take off. I'd do a couple patterns, did those, no problem. And then when I went out and did my first unsupervised where I just went out and I flew for about an hour and a half, something just kind of clicked then. And I could, you know, oh, I want to go there. Oh, I want to go there. And I could just do it. And I didn't have to think about it. It was the helicopter would go where I wanted it to. And by no means have I mastered this, but at least I'm at the spot where I can get the aircraft to go where I want it without having to think about it. And then I can focus on everything else that's going on. Understood. And it's all a visual clue when you're flying a helicopter because you're low and slow and it's not really, you're not really looking at an instruments per se, unless it's a tachometer and a manifold pressure and things like that. Right. Yeah. You glance at the instruments, but obviously I'm not instrument rated, so I'm not flying by the instruments. I think I, I, I've, I've had a couple of helicopter lessons myself, and the best thing I can relate it to is um, I, I used to try to play the drums, but not well. But it's kind of like that because <laughs> both hands are busy and both feet are busy. How did right. it feel to you? Yeah, it was the same thing for me. I have played the drums. So the the bigger issue with me is when I would use, for me on drumming, you're, you're, you, you would put in your input and you would take your foot back off. Whereas in the helicopter, when you apply the amount of, you know, counter rotation you want, you got to leave it there. It's not a put your foot on and put it on and put it off. You have to keep the amount of pressure. And that was something I had to work past kind of removing the muscle memory of playing drums. I, I play uh, electric bass, so maybe one day we could get together and play some music. At some <laughs> well, I'm not very good at it. I, I said I could play it, but I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I hear you. No problem. It's just a lot of fun. Well, that sounds good. So you're really far along on your training. Now, the, there's a goal to this. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your, your small business background, and then let's sure. lead into that helicopter tour 
that you're going to embark on next year. It's a 48-state contiguous state tour. Uh, I know you're still planning it. Yes, yes. And there's a lot left to go. Oh, there's a lot of planning, yes. Yeah, take us through the the small business aspect of that and how we're going to use a helicopter to get some of the small business folks on board, kick kick up that small business a little bit and provide some of the experience that you provide via your YouTube channels. Sure. My background when I did get out of the military and was back in civilian world, I started doing foreclosure flipping. I was doing very well with it. And in the Tampa Bay area, you could everywhere you looked was a foreclosure. And I would buy the houses, I would fix them up, resell them. And I had a team of people out there and we were doing, like we were still small, but we would do three to four houses per month. And it was a well-oiled machine. I don't want to say that I was, you know, brilliant and that I saw the writing on the wall because I didn't. Honestly, I was still a fairly young, you know, mid-20s kid. I didn't know what was going on, that the real estate market was going to implode. It was just pure luck that I took some of my profit at the time and started my tech business. And that lucked out very well for me. So I moved up to Virginia with one of my friends and we started a technology company. And that became fairly successful. And that was the money that I was able to then take. And that financed my you know, helicopter lessons. And over the past, was it 18, 19 months of the pandemic, I saw so many of my customers, because we provide web services for car dealerships. So I saw so many of my customers struggling. And I saw so many other small businesses out there struggling. You know, we were small, we were agile, you know, we're less than 10 employees. And we were able to kind of adapt and, and we were able to survive. But I saw so many others struggling. Right around that time, I wanted to get into YouTube. So I decided to create what I call the Stephen Carlson Show, as you can kind of see behind me. And it focuses all on entrepreneurship, small business, stocks, investing, and things that just, you know, interest me from a financial standpoint for small business owners. And I saw about, it was about probably four or five months ago, you know, I was doing the helicopters. I loved it, but it was just a thing on the side. It was fun. It was just, you know, a hobby. And I tried to think, well, what could I use that hobby to then also a help my YouTube channel and help other small businesses? So I decided to come up with the open for business campaign where myself and a much more seasoned helicopter pilot will fly to all the lower 48 states in a leased uh, bell it's a uh, Bell 206 L4. Great ship. Yes, a beautiful helicopter. And the company that I'm leasing it from, they are partners with my school, and their chief pilot is going to be flying the helicopter for me. Because, well, I'll have my license, and I definitely want to do some of the flying. I wouldn't feel comfortable just getting in a very expensive helicopter and flying around the country as my first big outing. That makes sense. And the other thing is I was going to ask you about, and I kind of forgot, what what helicopter model are you training with? So right now I'm in an R44, and it's a Raven 2. Beautiful helicopter. It's, it's well, it's a little old and a little uh, stubborn in the morning on cold days, but overall it's a very good helicopter, and I've had a lot of fun flying it. Yeah, that Robinson R44, it's got a nice Lycoming engine in it. It's a four-seater. It's, it's, got, it's a little more roomy than the R22 that I've got a lot of experience in as a news photographer and a couple hours in as a, as a, as a trainee. So um, the 206 is quite a different ship. That's a turbine. It's, yes. it's uh, got a lot more going on. It's a, a different way of flying. It's got more power, more torque. Correct. So uh, for you, that's going to be a fantastic learning experience, I would imagine. 
And that's what I'm looking at it is, you know, I'm going to have Dennis, he's the chief pilot, he'll be in there, I'll be up in the co-pilot seat. And then one of my employees for my tech company is going to operate the cameras. So he'll be in the back. And the basic idea is we're going to take off in Tampa, Florida. And then we're going to uh, basically all the all the individual states. And there's multiple other YouTubers that we're going to pick up. We're either going to interview them on the ground or we're going to put them in the back of the helicopter and fly to the next leg of our trip, interviewing them in the helicopter and kind of using the, uh, the helicopter as a backdrop and a character as part of our show. Sort of like as a vehicle uh, to push the show forward and to get to the next stop. Well, Stephen, you're going to expose a lot of people to general aviation. I think that's a double win situation. Exactly. And people that, you know, oh, I've always loved, because who doesn't love helicopters? You know, you know, who doesn't love aviation in general? But it might be just on the side. Oh, cool. Pretty helicopter. Oh, pretty plane. But they don't know about it. They don't, they've never experienced it. So bringing them into the helicopter and it's not, you know, my YouTube channel is not just about aviation. And I love YouTube channels on aviation, but I'm an aviation geek. And like you said, just for the average person that there's a little interest, but they wouldn't go subscribe to a channel that's only about helicopters or fixed wing. Here, these are people that, you know, they're business owners, they're regular, normal people that they're going to get experience and they're going to be able to see what the helicopter is like and they're going to be able to experience it kind of through our eyes. And I think that'll bring more people to aviation that's just going to love it. And some may go out and get their own lessons. I think that would be very encouraging for someone in the business world to understand that they can, in fact, use GA to get from point A to point B and, and see clients or maybe... Exactly. Even if you're doing real estate, that's a great aerial platform to look down and, and see what's going on in the world around us on the ground. So I'm going to give folks the link here. It's open4.business. And uh, if we click on that, we can we can find you there. And then if we click around, we see that there's a 2022 tour tab right at the top. That's correct. There's a Google map, Stephen. Tell me a little bit about how you are starting to plan, you know, the contiguous. Uh, I hope I said that correctly. The contiguous states here. <laughs> And you're starting uh, in your in your home base at Tampa, then uh, moving up through the Northeast. It looks like, or are you going the other way? That's correct. Yeah. So I'm going. Here, I can pull it up on my iPad here, so I can look at the same thing. I was looking at it because I know you're kind of going to wander around the uh, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia area, and of course we're here in Frederick, Maryland. We want to we want you to stop by, and I definitely want to say hello when you're in this area because there is a lot of aviation up here. And, um, and I, I just think it would be awesome to, to greet each other in person, but. Okay. You should be able to see that. I'm hoping. I do. I do. And it looks like it's uh, via ForeFlight or Garmin Pilot. I can't tell which one real quick. So this is ForeFlight. Obviously you and your audience are probably very familiar with it and starting here in Tampa and we're going to head out West. And our first main stop is over in uh, the Biloxi area. And we have multiple people we're going to be meeting out there. And I don't want to bore everybody with individual stops of what's going on. But when I was the beginning ideas of this, I had no idea how much planning I would need. Right. Because I'm trying, I'm trying to plan first with perfect weather, which I know will never happen. But I'm trying to plan where this is going to go and what we're going to do. So I'm having to plan every one of our fuel stops. 
I'm having to plan when we go to a fuel stop, if we're going to be staying there for a couple hours to go interview a local business, then I have to make sure that I have a rental car that's available, or sometimes there's a courtesy car that's available there at the airport. So I have to plan that out. Then when we get back in the helicopter, who we're interviewing, are they coming with us? Are they going to the next leg or are they just staying in this area? Are we going to be looping around? Are we going to land at the same airport? Right, right. Then each one of the hotels, these are things that I... I as a novice, I had no idea. And sitting down, luckily, the, the charter company has been helping me out quite a bit with this. And they've been saying, all right, well, here's where we need to have our stops. And because this is a helicopter I've never flown. I've only flown the Robinson. So kind of getting some of the ideas of, all right, let's plan for every 200 miles. We know we could go further, but let's have our plan at 200. And then make sure that we have rest days planned and rest hours in case weather, because weather will put a, a monkey wrench in this. You know it will. You're coming. You're going across the the southeast and uh, the Gulf Coast. That's already going to be a, a challenge. What month are you going to start in? So we're starting April twenty second, I believe. I have to go back and look. Right in the middle of the springtime, and I got. I'm from Atlanta. I can tell you point blank. There, the, you got a lot of you got a lot of turbulence. You got tornadoes that come down I twenty. Yes. You you know, so you got to be careful about that. Yeah, we tried to pick a time frame where we could go out to, you know, basically Arizona, Texas, New Mexico without it being too hot. Okay. And at the same time, then when we're looping back up over the northern states, it not be too cold. So it was kind of this happy medium where we were hoping it would work out. Well, that makes sense. And, and as far as helicopter operations go, you maybe explain maybe explain to the listeners who aren't helicopter pilots that how how the heat and the high density altitude uh, affect a helicopter. They know probably know a little bit more about fixed wing, but helicopter ops are a little bit a little bit more particular. Right, and, and there's a handful of considerations. So when we are going over some of the more mountainous areas, over you know the Rockies stuff like that, we have to concern a if we're over ten thousand or over fifteen thousand, do we have to have supplemental oxygen? So those are some of the concerns. So I had to pick a path that kept us at 10,000 or less for the majority of the trip. That way we didn't have to worry about that. Whereas fixed wing, at least from my understanding, you, you can contribute more on that. Fixed wing usually already has the oxygen if you are planning on doing those trips. Whereas helicopters, that's not always a, you know, something that's built in. So we would have to bring supplemental oxygen tanks with us. As a paramedic myself, it, it's, it, it's easy for me to put that all together, but trying to plan this out. And then like you were saying is when it's really, really hot out and when you're really, really high up, you have the density altitude. So you have concerns of the helicopter is not as efficient when it's really high and it's really hot outside. So there's certain limitations where we can only go 12,000 feet, whereas a fixed one, you could go much higher and it wouldn't be any concern for you. Well, that's a good explanation, and you are right. Uh, folks who uh, live in the in the western states typically will have aircraft with more powerful engines, sometimes uh, turbocharged as well, you know, boosted, so that they could get over those high mountains. And the and the ops are a little bit different, and that is true. Also, as far as fixed wing aircraft, quite a few do have built-in oxygen systems, but you could always you know take a portable setup. And we could, and from our perspective, we did plan that. If we needed it, we could, and we would just bring supplemental canisters with us and just um, nasal cannulas that go in your nose. But we planned our trip to avoid that as much as possible. That makes sense. All right, so you're going from east to west, and you're so you're curling around the Gulf states through Texas, and you're coming up through the Four Corners area. 
and then take us from a, the Four Corners and and Rocky Mountain states over to California. So the kind of the general area, some of this trip was not planned based upon the most efficient route. There would definitely be shorter routes that we could have picked, but these were specific locations where I had people we were interviewing. So that's kind of why there's a lot of zigzagging around. And you got to touch each state too. That's the other thing. Exactly. So some of the things of making sure that we actually make it to all 48 of the lower states. Um, One day I would love to expand this and go out to Alaska. Um, I own property out there, so I would love to do that as a longer trip, but it just wasn't practical for condensing everything into three weeks like we're doing now. Well, this looks like a, a great plan. So you're going to curl up around uh, the Pacific Northwest right. and head east over Idaho and Montana. Correct. Then uh, cross through uh, the Dakotas. Dakotas. Yep. End up in the Chicago area before you really uh, go through Ohio, uh, the mid-Ohio Valley, and then up through the northeast in New England. Correct. And then you're going to be heading south, southeast, and that's when I'll probably see you. Yeah, definitely. We should definitely uh, plan out a spot where where we can meet. I uh, have a handful of public appearances, but then obviously we can, depending on where you are, we can probably land at one of your airports and just use it as a fuel stop. Well, there's a couple of good ones around the Frederick area where AOPA is based. Uh, Hagerstown, which is not far from here. So I have pretty close to Camp David. So definitely make sure you check your TFRs when the time comes. Now, <laughs> exactly. how, many, how many miles altogether is that ginormous route? Can you can you spitball it for us, Stephen? Currently, it is 8,262 nautical miles based upon four flights. That is impressive. 8,000 miles plus. Now, we've had a couple of younger uh, folks this past summer start out on the East Coast and fly to the West Coast. And, and a couple of them did the 48 states as they were headed back as well but they were both in piper cubs they were going slow probably a little bit lower and a little bit slower than you right but their route was not as deep as your route right yeah like i said we definitely could have optimized this more if the goal was just to touch every state and keep on going but since there were certain spots where there were specific businesses we were interviewing, some of our sponsors, some are just local businesses I wanted to interview. So that's why our map kind of zigzags all over the place. All right. Well, Stephen, let's project to the future a little bit after the small business helicopter, open for business helicopter right. tour is over. Uh, where do you see yourself in aviation looking to the future? Now, you'll have after 8,300 miles, I mean, I don't know how many more hours of experience you're going to have, but it's going to be substantial. Yeah, well, there'll be, obviously, I won't be doing all the flying, but in general, there'll be about 100 hours in the helicopter. So whether I can log that, that doesn't really matter for this thing is, It'll be a hundred hours of just pure experience of, you know, uh-huh. different airspaces, different things that I've never seen, even locations I've physically never been to. So it's going to be a lot of learning from that and learning from an experienced pilot that has, Dennis has two or 3000 hours in helicopter. So he is extremely competent and knows what he's doing. So it's going to, it's going to be some great knowledge for me. And do you see yourself as a commercial helicopter pilot in the future in addition to your business holdings? Yes and no. I do plan on getting my commercial license. I don't necessarily uh-huh. plan on going for a career in it. The, the reason why I would want I commercial is it's much cheaper for insurance when I go purchase my own helicopter is having the commercial rating. It, it's just cheaper on the insurance rates. That makes sense. Um, now, you just mentioned something I was going to ask you about. So what would be a helicopter that you would consider purchasing? 
there's so many great ones out there. I, I am interested in the R66, so the turbine version of basically what I've been flying. I'm also interested in the Bell 505, which is kind of the newer version of the 206 that we will be flying in. Absolutely. And just ignoring the price point for a moment, because depending on the, how you get it packaged, the R66 is kind of like two-thirds the price of the Bell 505. I really love the 505, so if 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 that was an option, I think that'd probably be the one I would go with. And that's a pretty new helicopter design. I want to say that it was introduced right around 2018, maybe. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's about about three-ish years ago, so three, four years ago. And that is the updated Bell Jet Ranger. Basically, yeah. And I've got some time in a Super Jet Ranger, and those are pretty nice, too. So a little bit bigger, a little bit faster. So I would love to do that when you're asking future things. Presuming that everything works out, I mean, and nothing will be perfect. Life is never perfect. But let's say that this trip goes is very successful. It, you know, it brings awareness to small businesses. It helps them out. It also brings more attention to my channel, which obviously, just being honest, it's part of the goal as well. As long as the channel is able to succeed and I'm able to cover all the expenses of this trip, then I would like to do a repeat of it the next year, but stretch it out to about two months so I can stay in each state for at least a full day. Whereas right now, there's many states that were there for 20, 30 minutes, and that's about it. Just because, you know, it's three weeks. You can't do 48 states in three weeks and actually stay at every state for a very long time. So if I could extend this out to a two and a half, three month trip, I think that would be awesome. So maybe this could be something that you start this year and then continue to do on a regular basis after that to help other folks with their small businesses, because a lot, a lot of people have been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. It has. It really has hurt so many small businesses. And people don't realize the small businesses, that they are the core of the majority of the United States economy. And so much of small businesses impact all of us on a daily basis, even if you don't really realize it. They provide the fabric for which the rest of the economy is basically based on for the most part. I would Very say. true. Plus, you don't want a small, you don't want little towns that, especially some of the towns that you're going to stop in, to not have local players in the business community. It doesn't do much good for the uh, city to, to lose, even to lose some of the big box stores. It could really be detrimental to a lot of real estate and a lot of the malls and, and then things dwindle from there on, you know. Yeah, and this is not an anti-large corporation thing. It's just a pro-business thing while helping the small businesses out. Well, how can folks get in touch with you to, e to either follow along on the tour or request a stop? Sure. They can go to either my website for the YouTube channel, which is stephencarlson.show, or they can go to the Open for Business, which is open for, spelled out, F-O-R, dot business. All right. How can we get, you're going to expose a lot more folks to aviation. Yes. But how can we get even more people, especially young people, and a diverse population involved in aviation? That is a very good question, but I think by reaching out in different types of things, like some of the people that I'm going to be interviewing, well, well, I can't, there's certain individuals I can't mention their names yet. They've committed, but not publicly. But some of the people we're interviewing are not what you would expect as a small business owner necessarily. So quite a few of them are very well-known influencers that are very popular on social media that hit different demographics. So I think by bringing some of these individuals into the helicopter, their audience that's used to just funny YouTube reaction videos will get the 
perspective of, oh, hey, this is something different. We'll be able to see the business side behind the scenes of some of these influencers. They'll see the helicopter and they'll be able to say, hey, I kind of want to do that as well. So by exposing folks who might have a social media presence, that might carry our aviation word out farther. Yes. And then entice either uh, more more people and especially maybe or young people and a more diverse population back into thinking about aviation because they might not have thought about it before. Agreed. All right. Well, cool. Well, let's close out by letting people know one more time how they can grab you online and and tell us again the tentative date for the helicopter tour next year. Sure. They can go to www.stephencarlson.show or they can go to www.open4.business. And you're looking at April, did you say the 22nd, 26th, something like that next year? I know that we could push it back a little bit, but depending on weather, but if things align, is that what you're looking at? Like that third or fourth week in April? Yeah, so the very first day is Friday, April 22nd, and then it continues for a little over three weeks. Friday, April 22nd, and then three weeks beyond and almost 8,300 miles. Exactly. You hadn't figured out how many gallons of fuel that's going to be yet, have you? No, I haven't. Luckily, the charter company's paying for all the fuel, <laughs> so I haven't bothered to figure that part out. All right. And can and can people can hit you at, uh, at the Stephen Carlson Show and find out more about this yes. and maybe contribute a little bit if they wanted to, to help uh, fund the trip? Uh, some of the best things they can do to just contribute is just by watching the program, watching the show on YouTube. Uh, YouTube does pay me by using the ad road revenue. Okay. So if you watch one of the ads that's on the video, that does contribute to the finances to help pay for this trip because it's going to be... A, about $250,000 for me to pay for this entire thing. So that quarter of a million dollars, that's pretty steep now, but, but doable. And it brings oh, a lot definitely. more awareness to aviation and to the small business world. And people can catch you on the Stephen Carlson show right now. Tell us about how often you're on. So in case they want to tap in tomorrow morning, they could find you. Sure. Yeah. They can go to uh, stephencarlson.show as the website address, and it'll take them to the YouTube channel. And I provide weekly videos on finance. Sometimes there's multiple videos per week, but there's always at least one video. The weekly one is Monday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Fantastic. Stephen, thank you again for being such a good guest. Wishing you all the luck on the helicopter tour and open for business. And I hope to see you in person one day soon. Definitely. I can't wait. David, I think his story about why he wanted to become a pilot and especially a helicopter pilot is really cool. But I, I'm curious, you know, inquisitive minds want to know how I wonder how he's paying for it. Well, I think we have to stay tuned to find out more about that, Ian. But I do know that I'm going to meet Stephen when he comes up the East Coast on the helicopter tour. And listen, that's an 8,300 mile helicopter tour, four weeks in a Bell 206. I hope he brings a couple of changes of clothes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk and wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Google or Apple. And a happy holidays to everybody. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays, everybody.
Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.